Good evening. It is, as always, a privilege to be able to stand up here before you and to deliver a, a message from God's Word. Um, hopefully this, our time together will be profitable. Um, it's always intimidating to be up here a little bit, and it's always especially intimidating to be up here right after a gospel meeting. Um, but um, my, my, my style of presentation is a little different than Mr. Mr. Dickey's. Um, if you're here for big fancy words and complex logical debate and um, a deep dive into, I guess, the, the thought process of the human mind, um, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're here for a quick 30-minute lesson, you're also going to be disappointed. <laughs> but hopefully our time together will be profitable. If you would, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. That's going to be the basis for most of our study tonight. Um, we're going to use this chapter kind of as an outline. There's lots of, lots of different places you could turn to in the Bible where um, you can see examples of many warnings to heed God and to obey His commandments. Um, but this one in particular is one of my favorites. It's, it's a little bit of a unique example of that. Um, the two main themes we're going to see in this chapter, we're going to see, first of all, man being humbled. And second of all, we're going to see God being praised and glorified. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why um, I asked our brother to lead some songs of praise. I think they'll pair well with, with kind of the thought process behind this chapter. Um, but what makes this chapter so unique, if you don't know already, um, this chapter is written from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. Here he is. He's one of the most powerful world leaders of the day. And this isn't just written about him. This particular chapter is written by him from his perspective. And it's just a really unique insight into, again, this great, powerful world leader who's been humbled and has this greater appreciation of God as a result. Um, a lot of this chapter we're going to read, and some places where it makes sense we'll just kind of summarize for the, for the sake of uh, being respectful of your time. But we're going to start in verse 1. Um, these are the first three verses, this first section. We see Nebuchadnezzar praising God before all peoples. <clears throat> verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. And um, how great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. He starts off, we see, of course, this is Nebuchadnezzar the king speaking, and we see his audience. He starts off in verse 1. He is addressing all peoples, all languages, all nations. And it's interesting to note that this particular section of Daniel um, was written in the Aramaic language, which my understanding is in those days that was kind of the business language. That was kind of the common language among the peoples, um, especially under the Babylonian rule. You had lots of different people from lots of different nations and backgrounds united under Babylonian rule, and Aramaic was kind of the, the language that was used as a universal language. So this particular chapter in Daniel, some chapters are written in Hebrew, but this one in particular is written in the universal language. This chapter was meant for all peoples to know about it. And Nebuchadnezzar here is addressing all peoples. Um, it it kind of reminds me, we're going to make a lot of comparisons between some of the events of Daniel 4 and then how they can apply to us as Christians. 
Um, but it reminds me a lot of, of course, the Great Commission in Mark 16, verse 15, where we're told to go into all the world. This is just as Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming the greatness of God to all peoples. That's what we need to be doing in our own lives. Um, but we see that in verse 2, he, decided, he said, I thought it was good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Um, a, lot of thing, a lot of times we see examples in the Bible, um, especially you see miracles in the Gospels in particular, where people, whenever God has done great things through them, especially physical, if someone's been healed, someone's um, been healed of leprosy or lameness or blindness, People cannot contain their joy. They have to go out and tell everybody what's happened. Um, How much more so should it be whenever we see not just physical deliverance, but we see spiritual salvation? And here, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced both. Um, So he is eager to declare that to all peoples. And then verse 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And this is what makes this, like I said, so unique and so, so impressive. Here is one of the most powerful men on creation at this time. He's been humbled, and here he is glorifying the one true God. Um, he talks about just the great things that God has done, how mighty he are his signs and his wonders, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Those words in particular are very, very significant coming from this great world leader. Um, in the next section... We see verses 4 through 9, and we see, um, we see kind of the, I guess, um, we see Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's got a little bit of a problem, and he's reaching out for help. Um, so beginning in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretations. So we see Nebuchadnezzar, he has a problem. He, he has this dream, and he's very distressed by it. It says his dream made him very much afraid. He's confused by it, and he's troubled by it, and he is seeking help. Um, and even the great leader, Nebuchadnezzar, whenever he has, he's troubled by something, he even is humble enough to acknowledge that. Sometimes he needs help with things. Um, and I think it's important to note the importance of, of seeking godly help. And we see at first he sought help by those who are around him. Um, all these wise men by men's standards. And they were unable to provide an answer for him that would suffice. And finally, he acknowledged that he needed godly help. I'm reminded of examples in the New Testament, such as Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, um, where we see an example of someone who, who lacked understanding, and they acknowledged that they needed help. In, in the ways of, of God. Um, verse 9, you see it several times, and we'll emphasize it several times, 
But I really like the phrase used in verse 9. It says, referring to Daniel, he says, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. And because of that, no secret troubles you. And you'll be able to explain my vision. But this concept of the spirit of the holy God is in you is something that pops up several times in this, in this narrative. And it's very significant. Um, so let's talk about this idea of the wisdom of God and the spirit of God. Um, now we know, of course, that the spirit of God doesn't directly touch us quite the same way it did in these days. Um, we don't have the Holy Spirit whispering in our ear quite the same way that maybe Daniel would have. Um, But it's definitely a concept that we see even as New Testament Christians. It's something that we see and should experience every day in our lives through the Holy Spirit and through his scriptures that's provided to us. Of course, a very familiar passage to us is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, which reminds us that all scripture is inspired by God and it's given for all these good works. Um, But we we have other scriptures that kind of support this, too. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Is one that we turn to sometimes. First uh, Corinthians chapter ten and verse eleven, and it says, "Now all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come." Talking about a lot of things of the of the Old Testament, these Old Testament examples, like Nebuchadnezzar, we see that they're written down to be given as examples for us. So they're they're inspired by God, and they're still relevant to us in our lives. Um, we also see, um, if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this is very relevant because a lot of times people like to try to discredit the scriptures and argue as to what parts of the scriptures may or may not be inspired. Um, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, this is going to seem like a weird passage out of context, but then we'll explain kind of what we mean by it. But verse 18, it says, For the scriptures say... Um, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Um, if you notice what's it, what it says, it says, the scriptures say, and then it quotes something out of the Old Testament, but then in that same context of talking about what the scripture says, it also quotes the Gospel of Luke and quotes, quotes Christ himself. Um, so we see that Paul here, he very much firmly believed that the Gospels were inspired scriptures, and then if you turn over to um, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses uh, 15 and 16. Verse 15, I'm kind of breaking in context here, but it says, And considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation... As also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them um, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist in their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Um, Here we see Peter, he's referring to the epistles of Paul in the context of being scriptures as well. So right there, we have the Old Testament, we have the Gospels, and we have, at the very least, Paul's epistles referred to as inspired scripture by God. So we have a lot of access to this Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of the Holy God that should reflect in our own lives even today. Now, if you turn back to Daniel chapter 4, 
uh, still on this on this concept of of having this this spirit of God um, in us. We need to have that in our lives today. We need to be able, just as Daniel was able to provide this 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 spirit of God, this God inspired counsel to this great leader Nebuchadnezzar. We also need to be able to provide that example and provide that kind of counsel to those who are around us too. Um, just emphasizing the importance of, of having that influence in our own lives. Um, now, if we look at verses 10 through 18, now we start to see, um, I guess you could call it Nebuchadnezzar's problem. We see this warning for Nebuchadnezzar. We see his dream. And we're not going to read every, every verse of this because a lot of this gets repeated in its explanation. And so we'll read a lot of that then. But just, just to kind of summarize some of the highlights of this dream, um, we see this image that Nebuchadnezzar sees of a great tree. Some of its characteristics we see are is it's very big, it's very strong. We see it shelters the things that are around us. So around it, it provides lots of shelter. We see that it provides fruit and leaves. It's very nourishing to the things that are around it. Um, and then verse 13, after we see this image of a tree, uh, verse 13 says, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried out loud, and he says, Chop down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Um, so we see this, this messenger from God comes into play. And that's significant because it shows kind of where the authority of this is coming from. It's a messenger from God. And we see that the tree is cut down. And then it ends by talking about how a stump is left. So the tree is cut down, but there's still a little bit of a remnant of the tree. We still see its root system. We see its stump that, that's still there. Um, and um, it also says, in reference to the tree's stump, it says, he shall become like a beast. So you see right then and there that this is obviously representative of, a, of an individual. It says, he will become like a beast and roam the fields like a beast for, for a period of time. If we look in verse 17, we see that the authority from all this comes from God. Um, verse 17 says, This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. So we see that God is in control and the authority for all that happens in the realm of men, and this vision and the events of this all come from God. And then in verse 18, we see emphasized once again this concept of the spirit of the holy God is in you. Um, Verse 18 says, This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, Declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Um, it's very important for us as Christians to, to kind of hold this attitude, this idea that we need to always acknowledge the source of the things that are given to us. And we always need to give God glory. Passages like Matthew 5 and verse 16, where we're letting our light shine before men that they may see our good works. And what's the emphasis there? That God may be glorified. Whatever we do, whatever good work we do, we need to do it and we need to give God glory for it. So we've seen Nebuchadnezzar, we see his, his issue here with this dream. 
And now we're going to go to Daniel, and we're going to see his interpretation of the dream and how that applies. We'll see the solution. So we'll look at, at verse 19. It says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Um, It's interesting (laughs) to see Daniel's initial reaction to this. Um, At first, he's astonished, and he's very troubled. These are very concerning things. Um, And often the things of this world are very concerning and very confusing at times before the inspiration of God comes into play. And we see Daniel has a little bit of a taste of this. It seems to be that he initially hears these things, and, um, and he's, he's very concerned and troubled by them. Um, it's also interesting to note Daniel's initial response in verse 19. At the end of verse 19, he says, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel has um, a pre-existing relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know exactly how that comes into play now. At one point, we see that Daniel was um, a very high official in the kingdom. I get the impression that at this point, some time has passed. Um, I gather, based on Daniel kind of being the last result, that perhaps maybe he's, um, he's a little bit older, a little more bit of a, a retired role at this point. But... We see that he has this relationship established with Nebuchadnezzar. And whether it just be purely from Daniel's own um, self-preservation or perhaps concern for this person he has a relationship with, he he says, you know, he said, may this concern those who hate you may be about your enemies. But one thing to note is regardless of how Daniel may want it to play out, he's still going to stick to what God tells him, and he's still going to interpret accordingly. Um, A lot of times in our own lives, when it comes to those who are around us, there's going to be people that we don't wish to be confrontational with. There's going to be people that um, sometimes we care very deeply about. And in order to speak God's truth to them, it's going to be a very hard and painful thing to all people involved. But just like with Daniel's example, regardless of, of what relationships may have to be sacrificed, regardless of um, your own safety. You always, we always have to stick to what God says is his standard, what he reveals to his truth to be. Um, as we continue in this interpretation and get kind of into the meat of it in verse 20, he says, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached out to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which all food um, was for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and uh, in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. So we see this image of this tree is confirmed to be Nebuchadnezzar, this great king. And just as the imagery suggests, we see Nebuchadnezzar, he had his, his branches stretched very far. Because of him and his power, there were a lot of people who were nourished. There were a lot of people who did have some level of protection and safety that comes with 
um, being under a strong ruler. And that's the imagery that's presented with this tree. But then it continues on in verse 23. It says, And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of the heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." So we see this, this ultimatum presented before Nebuchadnezzar, um, this, this prophecy of what's, what's about to come to him. So while Daniel said that he wished it would concern his enemies and not him, we see ultimately that Nebuchadnezzar is the subject of this, of this dream and of this prophecy. And we see that he's going to be chopped down like a tree, he's, and he's going to be brought low, and he says, even to the point where he shall be like, a, like an animal, a beast of the field. Um, it's, it's interesting, the contrast. Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as so high and so powerful, and he's going to be brought lower than man could even really comprehend. Um, no one in the right mind would imagine that this great king would start acting like a, like a wild beast in the field. Um, he's going to be truly humbled. And we see that this is, this is a temporary punishment. God promises that it'll be for, it says, um, says, a period of seven times. We don't know exactly what that time period is, if it's years or months or who knows. But we see that it's for an extended period of time, but it has its limit. And that's what God, God promises Nebuchadnezzar. That's what we see here. Um, but we also see that it doesn't just stop there. That's not the end of the prophecy. Um, in verse 26, we see that God gives Nebuchadnezzar an out. He gives him a chance at repentance. Um, we see in verse 26, it says, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. God is, of course, a very merciful and a very gracious and a very patient God. And he does not make exception in that with Nebuchadnezzar. We see he gives him a chance. He says, um, perhaps he might be spared or perhaps this is just a just a, a lengthening of, of, um, of this, but we see that he gives him this chance to, to repent in some fashion and to acknowledge that um, God is in control and to live his life accordingly. Um, but of course we see as we continue on that Nebuchadnezzar does not accept that chance. Um, God also shows that same mercy to us as well. See, like in First Peter three or Second Peter three and verse nine, it talks about God is a very long-suffering God, and He wants all to come to repentance. 
This applies to us as well. Um, But just like Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see, who chooses not to repent, um, he's punished and judged as a result, and so we will be also. So continuing on in verse 28. Here we see this humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, this humiliation. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives to whomever he chooses. That very hour was the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and ate grass like oxen, His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. From the beginning, we see in verse 29 that it says, about 12 months had passed. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's given quite sufficient time um, to to heed God's warning and to repent. Um, A whole year has passed, and it seems, if anything, uh, he has only grown in his ego instead of in his humility. And so, as a result, um, an immediate judgment falls upon him. Now, this is very similar, again, to how God treats us. We also have this opportunity to repent. He's very long-suffering. He's very patient with us. But we know there will come a time where that long-suffering will end. And when it does end, our judgment will be very swift and immediate, just as... Just as um, Nebuchadnezzar's was here. But listen to what he's saying in verse 30. He says, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling in my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? How high, mighty, how haughty, how egotistical he is. And um, very much in contrast to a lot of the other things mentioned about God, how he is in control of the ways of men and the he, he ultimately makes the decisions of all the rulers. So he's very much humbled. And again, immediately this judgment takes place. And he's driven out. And like I said, this is such an interesting and such a unique punishment too. Uh, he's driven out like a, like a beast. And it seems that he loses his sense of humanity. He loses his sanity. And he's like a beast of the field. Um, be very curious to, to see this. Um, just the way the description sounds, you know, it's, he's covered in, in long hair like, like eagle's feathers. He has these long claws almost. He's very beast-like, not just in mannerism, but in appearance as well. And he's, he's forced to, to eat the grass just like an ox. And we see that God, again, he, he's true to his promise. Um, he, he is, is uh, true in, in the limits of what he said he'll do. And in, in that once that seven, seven times has passed, God begins to show his mercy once again. And then this last section is where I really want to emphasize 
this last section of chapter 4 is where um, we see God, God is glorified. And it's a very impressive ending to such an such a interesting story. Um, but we see God glorified. So we see in verse 34, it says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And we'll pause there for a second. So God's true to his, his promise. He returns Nebuchadnezzar's sanity to him. And we see that God is glorified and praised by none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself as a result. Uh, if we look at, at these characteristics that um, Nebuchadnezzar refers to when he's talking to God, it, it's interesting the contrast. This list, a lot of what he says about God is what Nebuchadnezzar, how he kind of viewed himself before his humiliation. But as we read through these things and we look at these characteristics in this, in this section of praise, we start to realize that really God is everything that Nebuchadnezzar isn't or wasn't. Um, some of these things like he's the most high. Nebuchadnezzar at that time, he was the supreme world leader in the eyes of men. He thought he was the most high, but we see that's not the case at all. It says um, he, God who lives forever, Nebuchadnezzar. As we'll see, this is really the, some of the last mention of him. Um, seems to be kind of at the end of his life. And Nebuchadnezzar um, is no more, even to this day. Um, he's around a name only. God lives up forever. We see he mentions an everlasting dominion. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is, is nothing but a name in history now. His dominion is no more. Um, the kingdom of Babylon is no more. And it hasn't been for a very long time, but God, he has an everlasting dominion. It mentions God and his kingdom from generation to generation. We can see in the book of Daniel alone that that was not the case at all for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in chapter 5, we see Belshazzar, this is a Babylonian king. Um, it mentions Nebuchadnezzar being his father. I think most people agree that Nebuchadnezzar probably wasn't his immediate father, maybe an ancestor. And some historians would even argue that Nebuchadnezzar was his father in name only, um, perhaps in, in a political sense, but not in a, in a biological sense. But we definitely know not long after um, Belshazzar, in um, the end of chapter 5, we see that the Medo-Persian kingdom comes into play. Um, so... God, his kingdom is from generation to generation, and the generations of Nebuchadnezzar come to an end. We also see that um, it says no one can resist God or question him, as we see in, in, in verse 35. It says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can, can oppose God. Um, no one can question God. Look at Nebuchadnezzar in contrast to that. If you look back uh, chapter 2, look at the example of, um, the well-known example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. 
Why were they thrown in the fiery furnace? Because they opposed the king. And who came out on top of that? They did because they had God on their side. Quite the contrast to God who no one can resist and no one can question. We see in verse 36, we see that finally his, um, his kingdom is, is restored to him. Um, it says, verse 36, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom and my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles were restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So we see the kingdom is restored to Nebuchadnezzar at last upon his, his, his humiliation and his humility and repentance. And then um, we see he kind of has a new look on life. Um, he's, he's a far more humble individual, and he realizes that he is, he's not the supreme ruler of the world. That position um, belongs to the Most High God. Um, he praises God in contrast to, to his, his praise of himself. Um, we see that he proclaims truth, it says. It says, all of whose works are true. And he also acknowledges justice. He says the ways of, of the Lord are just. And I think that is probably a reflection upon himself as well. Um, God warned him. God gave him a chance to repent. He refused to take it. He was judged accordingly. His ways are just. And um, we see that he professes just how powerful and how superior God is to man. Um, I want to kind of conclude by taking these concepts, but just taking a, a quick second to look at just how impressive and how wonderful God's glory is to anything that we can comprehend as men. Um, even the greatest kings, the most majestic rulers, don't even begin to compare to him and his glory. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 1. We were studying recently in our classes, um, as we're studying through the Gospels, and we still are, uh, but this was towards the beginning of that study. Um, but one phrase that really stood out to me, and I kind of went down with a rabbit hole with it, um, is found in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19. And this, this is the example where um, we, hear, we see Zacharias, and he is the father of John the Baptist. And we see Gabriel coming before him and speaking to him. And verse 19, it says, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring these glad tidings. But just that title right there alone, should, it just, it's an awesome title in the truest sense of the word. Um, but he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Look at man's reaction to being in the presence of someone who has been in the presence of God. If you look down, or look up rather, at verse 12, we see Zacharias's reaction when he first sees Gabriel. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him. In verse 12 it says, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. 
That's the reaction of being of seeing someone who's been in the presence of God, not even seeing God Himself. Um, I'm, I think about the example of the sun and the moon. The moon is an awesome thing. It's an incredible thing, and we can barely comprehend its beauty. But the the moon in all its glory is but a reflection of the sun. We can't even begin to look at the sun without hurting ourselves because it, it's just so amazing and so powerful. That's the that's the imagery we have here. Um, this this angel is someone who's been in the presence of God. He's a reflection of God, and this angel itself is an awesome and a terrifying thing to be in the presence of. Um, we have other examples of reactions to this. If you turn over to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 and verse 30. This is when Moses, he's come down. We'll start in verse 29. So now, so it was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had the two tablets with him, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses was someone who, indirectly in some sense, but he had been in the presence of God. And just by being in his presence, his face was shining, and he was a terrifying thing to behold, just by being in the presence of God. And then we see Jesus in Matthew 17. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has a very similar experience um, to Moses, and Moses interestingly enough, is there at that time. Um, <clears throat> but we see that he, too, has, um, has this, this face that, that shone. He, he, was, he was great in appearance. He was clothes were white as light. And in verse 6, what are the response to that? Man's response in verse 6, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. This is the reaction to being someone who is in the presence of God. Now, I want to conclude with Revelation 21. We've seen through the example of Nebuchadnezzar and through these passages just how incredible God is, how glorious He is, how powerful and wise He is. Let's look at Revelation 21. We've just talked about how terrifying it is to be around someone who's been in the presence of God. But then in Revelation 21, beginning of verse 22, this image of heaven our eternal home. It says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. That's the home that God promises to those who are faithful. He promises to those who are faithful this this city where He is the light. And... Just how incredible and how powerful that is. We as man cannot even be around someone who's been in the presence of God without just falling on our faces in fear. But God has extended this invitation for us to come and to be with Him and be in this city that is illuminated by His glory. I think we've seen by, by the, the scriptures we've looked at to, tonight just how impressive that is. Just as Nebuchadnezzar we too are giving, given a chance at repentance. Um, we see that that's a temporary time. God is very patient and long-suffering with us. But there will come a time where 
we will be judged, and it'll be a very swift judgment, and either we will have, have passed his judgment and be able to spend this eternity in um, this city that's illuminated by his glory, or we will be punished accordingly. So I ask you at this time to consider your own, your own relationship with God, consider your own life, and if there's any way that we can help you, if you need to repent of some sin, if you need the prayers of the saints, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, we ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.